0: Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works.
1: Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark. There's Charles W. Chuck Bryant. There's Jerry over there. And this is Stuff You Should Know about people who have really bad luck.
0: Nine of them.
1: Yeah, we can't, I don't think we've ever done a, ten, a full top 10 list, have we?
0: No, that that'll, that should be our last episode. Yeah. It's like stuff you should know is 10 biggest regrets. <laughs> <laughs> right. That's a great idea. Yeah, that'll be the last one. All right, let's write that down. I, I, there's no, We don't have 10 regrets. <laughs> yeah, I guess
1: we couldn't do a full 10. No, oh, actually, we could probably come up with 10. No, we couldn't. VidCon, number one. That's a big one. <laughs> This intro is definitely up there, too.
0: Number two. See? Yeah. We're on our way. All right. Good. Um, how are you feeling? Pretty good? I'm great. You feel lucky, punk? Uh, I, I'm a pretty lucky person, I will say that.
1: Uh, I would agree with that. Or, or good fortune. Uh huh.
0: My friends have called me the rabbit's foot over the years.
1: Yep, yeah, That's why they're always rubbing you.
0: But that's, <laughs> that's mainly for narrowly escaping trouble more than anything.
1: Uh, how about a story, Chuck? Lay it on us.
0: Oh, just I mean, I was I was very uh, famous among my group of friends for getting pulled over by police and not getting tickets. Right. I mean, at one point it was it had literally happened like fourteen times in a row or something over a span of like ten or twelve years. Oh, okay. <laughs> it was it happened a lot that I never and I, I didn't get my first ticket till geez, probably in my thirties, mid thirties. How did you? How? What happened?
1: Did you talk your way out of
0: it or? Yeah, you know what you do, man? And my brother always gets a ticket, and Mm -hmm. he's much nicer than I am. Mm -hmm. But you just got to be as humble, 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 humble as you can be. And if you show the slightest bit of attitude, then that police officer, in my experience, will delight in writing you that ticket. Sure. I mean, even if if it's a sideways look, and I basically just throw myself at the mercy of the court on the side of the road. I'm like, I'm so sorry, officer. I, You are, you should have pulled me over. You did the <laughs> right thing. I was wrong, and I'm sorry. There's no excuse. Here's, I was going
1: to eat these french fries, <laughs> but you should take them. You're the hero here. I think
0: they're always a little disarmed, and they're like, oh, oh, oh okay. Well, I guess I can let you off with a warning. Hmm. I don't know. That's been my experience.
1: All right. There's Chuck advice right there.
0: Yeah. So how you get everyone.
1: out of 14 tickets. Mm-hmm. So did you forget to the last, the 15th time? Did you forget? Did you sneer, call him a pig, what?
0: No, I think it was just one of those things where, like, they were writing the ticket even before I had a chance to do my little song and dance. Uh-huh. And they brought me the ticket, and I was kind of like, well, wait a minute, don't you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the guy that gets out of tickets. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to say
1: I'm Chuck from Stuff You Should Know. Uh, no, that means nothing. That's how you That's how you get out of them these days, buddy. No. Well, um... We're talking today about some people who have very bad luck. And, you know, like, a lot of these lists usually are just like, uh, no to this one, no to that one, no, this is wrong. Um, I think we tried to do a list once where, uh, like, oh, man, I can't remember which one it was, but, like, every single entry was just, yeah. m- like, just false, right? Yeah. That's only the case with, like, three of these this time, which I'm pretty, that's a not a bad batting average for a listicle.
0: Yeah, and some of these are... uh the word luck kind of bothers me sometimes because as is the case we'll go ahead and get to the first one uh Ron Wayne who was one of the original three partners of a- Apple Computers has not bad luck Ron Wayne made a poor business decision.
1: Have you uh that's a good point. Have you, know? you ever heard of Ron Wayne before? No. Had you? He, no, I haven't. And had I heard his name I would have been like he sounds like a porn
0: actor, but he's not a <laughs> porn actor. Oh no, that was that was another guy. I can't say his real name though.
1: Uh, who? <laughs> I demand that you say it. <laughs> I'll tell you off mic. Okay, so um, he turns out this guy was not a pornography actor. <laughs> he was one of the three founders of Apple. And as far as I had known to this point, there were two founders of Apple. Turns out there were three at the beginning for like the first 12 days.
0: Yeah, so go back to 1976 in our Wayback Machine and nerdy little jobs and nerdy little Wozniak are young guys uh, in their 20s, and they had this great uh, – they didn't know it at the time. Well, they may have known it or suspected, but this this great uh, vision for the future. But they were kind of kids, and they didn't have any experience. So they looked to a guy named Ron Wayne, who was in his 40s, uh, to come in and kind of help uh, what they called with adult supervision.
1: Because, mm-hmm. I mean, they were programmers from Atari, but – yeah, they didn't have the actual business sense or whatever, And right? Atari was
0: just a party job at the time.
1: I believe so. Yeah. But I, I had no idea Atari produced Apple, though, did you?
0: Oh, yeah. I, I did a bunch of Atari research stuff for my tech stuff guest spot. Oh, okay, cool. Yeah, we did a history of Atari two-parter. Oh, speaking of guest spots,
1: man, let me just also give a shout-out real quick. Sorry to interrupt this little entry, but I was on um our good friend John Goforth's and our new friend Brent's podcast Hysteria 51 recently. Oh, nice. Yeah, we talked about the Fermi paradox for like an hour, and it was awesome. So go check that out, Hysteria 51. Go check that out. (laughs) Okay, so plug out.
0: Right, so we're in 1976. Uh, Waz and Jobs have recruited Juan uh, Juan Wayne, Ron Wayne, (laughs) to be the adult in the room to help with engineering documentation. And it was actually Ron Wayne who... uh, who drafted the very first Apple contract and said, "You know, this is what they agreed on." He just make it up, which said how much everyone is going to get. Uh, he got ten percent to Jobs and Wozniak's forty-five, mm-hmm. and he even created the first Apple logo, which was not the logo we know and love now. It was a, uh, it was like a woodcut um, style thing of uh, Isaac Newton under the apple tree. <laughs> right. Not bad. Sounds
1: terrible. Yeah. I disagree. I think it sounds ugly. <laughs> so, um, Ron Wayne, though, while he was there, he very quickly was like, I don't know if this is my kind of place. I thought it was a good idea. I like what these guys are doing. But this company in a garage, Steve Jobs keeps taking acid during the middle of business hours. <laughs> um, Did he wh- really? Yeah. Oh, wow. Steve Jobs thought he was pretty cool from what I understand. Sure. Um, he – uh Ron Wayne was like, I, I don't, I don't think I fit in here. Also, apparently, he was worried that he was going to have to pony up for you know whatever business debts they incurred.
0: I think that was a big deal.
1: Uh-huh, and he was like, All right, I'm out. I'm out. Yeah, because so-
0: he was an adult, and he was like, I've got a house, and like I've, I'm a real adult human. Like they're going to turn to me certainly mm-hmm. when they yeah. need dough.
1: So he he cashed out in in 12 days, 12 days after they established their contract and the contract um was kept by Ron Wayne actually and we'll get to that in a second. But he cashed out for $2300. 230,000 you say? No, 2300. <laughs> yeah, man. Which is still today worth less than like 10 grand. Yeah. Um, and he didn't even get it all at once. he got eight hundred right then, and then uh he agreed to take fifteen hundred later and that was nineteen seventy six and in nineteen eighty, Apple went public, and everybody involved became an instant millionaire and years later it hit the trillion dollar mark for valuation and all the while, Ron Wayne got to watch this company grow and grow and grow and realize that he'd sold off 10% of the stake in the company mm. for 2300 bucks.
0: Yeah, and apparently if he had held all those stocks, uh, he'd be worth close to $100 billion.
1: So he, he takes issue with that. He said he probably lost out on tens of millions.
0: Yeah. I mean, I guess it depends on what, like you can't, since you can't go back and uh, do it all over again, mm-hmm. like Eddie Money says. Right. <laughs> uh, I guess there's always the thing of like, well, yeah, but... He always maintains, I would have gotten out after that before the big cash-in anyway, probably. So I don't like to look at it as that sort of a loss, is what he tells himself.
1: Basically, or else I would have gone totally insane a long time ago.
0: Yeah, but he did, apparently, uh, he wrote a Facebook essay Mm -hmm. and said, I probably, though, would have been around in 1980 and gotten some pretty good change, and, and I think regrets it.
1: Yeah, he said had he known that it, and everybody was going to become a millionaire in 4 years, he definitely would have hung in there. But he just it's hindsight's 2020, 20, you know. Yeah, and the and, cherry
0: on top here is pretty interesting though. Yeah. Uh, you said he kept that contract, that very first Apple contract mm-hmm. that he drew up and he kept it and he auctioned it off in the early 90s for how much?
1: 500 simoleons. $500.
0: Mm-hmm. And then Which what happened?
1: Not bad. It was just a piece of paper he had hanging around. Well, sure. Somebody turned around and auctioned it off years later in 2011 for...
0: <laughs> Almost 1.6 million.
1: <laughs> Poor <Man>. Ron Wayne. <laughs> I know. Now, that one's bad luck. I wonder what
0: he did, though, with his life.
1: Uh, he wrote essays on Facebook. No,
0: I mean, I bet he did Okay. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Probably I mean, not he, Steve Jobs, okay, but I doubt if he, like, you know, got a got a low-wage, hourly-paying job. I don't know. He became Eddie Money's tour manager. Oh, well,
1: things worked out then. <laughs> right. And every time Eddie Money sang, I want to go back a tear <laughs> down Ron Wayne's face. That's right. So, um, I think we should move on. We're going to leave Ron Wayne because my hat also— we should definitely tip our hats to anyone who faced adversity like this and was like, S happens. Yeah. And has had tipped to Ron Wayne for that one. Um, and Hodges did not have that kind of experience. She is the only person, as far as anyone knows, the only human being in the history, in recorded history of humanity, to have been hit by a
0: meteorite. <laughs> I'm laughing and I shouldn't. Um, well, actually, I, uh, she didn't get that hurt, so that's why I feel okay laughing. It's not yeah. like it fell on her head no. and killed her. Uh, it's November 30, 1954 in Alabama, and a 8.5-pound uh, meteorite uh, came through her roof, mm-hmm. bounced off of a radio, and hit her in the hip.
1: Yeah, it makes you wonder, like, if if she had been, you know— where the radio was. And this wasn't like a bounced, like a... a,
0: Ricochet?
1: Yeah, a ricochet. (laughs) I mean, how much worse would things have been? Yeah, probably dead. There's a... I saw a picture on Reddit of her just randomly. We had already picked this episode and started researching, and I saw a picture of her bruise on Reddit, and it was um, pretty nasty. Pretty nasty little bruise. Yeah. But that was about as bad as it got physically. Um, So she was laying on the couch... A meteorite came through her roof, hit her radio, hit her, and um she became almost immediately a, a media sensation because word got out very quickly that a woman had been struck by a meteorite, probably the first and only person ever.
0: Yeah, and it and that's super rare. Like it's rare. It's rare for a meteorite to fall just in an urban area where mm-hmm. people live or suburban area where people live. Because I, I don't
1: know if I would call Alabama urban.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's it's just not usual. Like, usually meteorites, you know, there's a lot of water on Earth. Usually they'll just land in the ocean somewhere. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's big news if a meteorite hits anywhere near people, much less hitting a person.
1: Right. There is a a meteorologist named Michael Reynolds who told National Geographic, get this. He said, you have a better chance of being hit by a tornado, a bolt of lightning and a hurricane at the same time than you do a meteorite. I'm not sure how he actually quantified that, but that's one of the better quotes I've read in a while.
0: Yeah. And this is where it gets. This is just so America and USA is there was a court battle. Between her and her landlord, because her landlord was like, that's my space rock, (laughs) (laughs) because it's my house. And and Ann Hodges was like, no, that's my space rock, because it hit me in the hip. Right. And they went to court, and Hodges actually won and got to keep that, uh, sadly, ultimately valueless meteorite yes she's she's
1: settled actually she ended up paying the landlord 500 bucks for the right to the rock but by the time this was finally settled two years later they found out that nobody cared any longer it was old news so nobody wanted to buy the meteorite and you might think well okay it's not clear that anyone would ever wanted to buy the meteorite to begin with Not true. They have a neighbor just down the road who had just the tiniest little piece of that space rock and sold it at the time this thing was a big media sensation and was able to buy a new house and a new car from the proceeds. So the the Hodges were like, clearly we've got the space rock. We're going to cash in. We're going to buy the state of Alabama with the proceeds. But two years later, it was totally valueless. And um, Ann Hodges actually had a just just kept taking turns for the worse and ended up dying in a nursing home at age 49 after having a nervous breakdown from the the whole ordeal
0: yeah it's very sad Um, but that meteorite is on display at the Alabama Museum of Natural History and I hope that there is at least a a small placard that memorializes her surely there is right
1: I would I would hope so
0: yeah which that, that would be a nice thing after a string of bad luck It's pretty bad luck. Should we take a break? I think we should. All right, we're going to take a break and talk about uh, the unluckiest person in the music industry right after this.
1: Chuck, I have a tad bit of anxiety <laughs> about Because you the Beatles? This. No, no. <laughs> okay. No, I have anxiety about this one just because it's so rotten and rough. I feel so bad for this guy.
0: Well, here's the thing. Uh, before the break, I called former first Beatles drummer, not former first, but former and first Beatles drummer, Pete Best, the unluckiest man in music. Mm-hmm. He's been called that. Uh, that's not true either. Pete Best didn't have bad luck. Pete Best didn't have good chops. Oh,
1: is that what it was? Yeah. So, oh, okay. Well, that's, okay. That's totally different. Yeah. I thought it was, I, I didn't think it was bad luck necessarily. Obviously, didn't jibe with the group. But I thought maybe it was like he had to walk around being like, I have a terrible personality. And that's why I'm not a Beatle or whatever.
0: No, we'll, we'll get to that. So, let's go back in time uh Pete Best uh in the very early days of the Beatles in the 1950s when they were known as the Quarrymen um his mom he was a drummer and his mom had the he owned something called the Casbah Coffee Club in mm-hmm. Liverpool cool and she was she was cool and she was very like ahead of her time as far as um the Liverpool music scene very much out in front of it so it's the kind of deal where like well, pizza drummer and his mom owns a a, a place <laughs> where we can play. I got gotcha. you. So he's in the band, and it's good because uh, now we got a place where we can gig, and we got a drummer that's that can play okay. <laughs> and yeah. he's handsome. That was a big part of it. Was he? Yeah, that was a big thing over the years. What that was rumored that he was kicked out because Paul said he was too handsome and he didn't want any competition.
1: Are you? Is he still around? Yeah, he's alive. Okay, well, I'm not going to say the next part then. <laughs> so, um, he he was enough. So, I guess at the time, the Beatles, by by the time Pete Best was kind of brought on, he wasn't, like, officially brought on as, a, as, like, the Beatles Beatles as we think of them today, where there was, like, four of them. There was, like, a rotating bunch of drummers, and Pete Best was one of those drummers, right?
0: Yeah, but he played, I mean, he was... He kind of, it was sort of like when I rotated in Stuff You Should Know Early On a little bit. Uh, Like, there was still a rotation going for a short time, I think, and then everyone else just went away. Right. Like, Pete Best played like 80-something gigs with the Beatles, pre-Hamburg, I think.
1: Oh, okay. And then they took him to Hamburg, which apparently was a big, big turning
0: point for everybody. They played like 80 shows a week in Hamburg.
1: I saw a great quote. Um, they said that, so in Hamburg is where the Beatles like really started to become like the sure. Beatles, like they coalesced into a band. I saw that they arrived wearing lilac sport jackets and trousers and left wearing black leather jackets and jeans. And it's where they learned sex, drugs, and rock and roll.
0: Yeah, Pete Best wasn't into the drugs though, like the other three guys. Oh, really? So that was a problem. Sure. Um. That's a buzzkill.
1: <laughs> When the one guy in the room is just sitting there staring at you, judgy.
0: Yeah, well,
1: I would, I mean, that's kind of a buzzkill, I would guess, right?
0: Yeah. Yeah. Probably so. I think they were all like doing speed back then. Oh, sure. Because they were playing literally like six or seven shows a night.
1: Were they really playing that many?
0: Oh, it was ridiculous.
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So um, he was in a group called the Blackjacks before that, though went to Hamburg with the Beatles, Mm -hmm. and then right after that, the Beatles go back to England in 1962, and they were just about to go into the studio to record their first uh, singles for EMI, and uh, legendary manager Brian Epstein called up and said, sorry, bloke, uh, the boys want you out, and it's already been arranged.
1: Yeah, meaning like, don't even bother, it's done, which is sad, um and Pete Best took it pretty hard from what I understand for a uh, horrible in a horrible twist of irony he ended up working at the unemployment office but working there not right. hanging out there um <laughs> and by this time like he had made a name for himself around Liverpool as as a musician and a beatle um the reason why he's called the unluckiest man in music is not because he was a beatle at one point in time but that he was a beatle at one point in time and was kicked out of the band a few weeks before the Beatles blew up. Yeah. And um it almost makes you wonder like, did they blow up because they moved on to Ringo, or was it like that was just bad timing?
0: Well, I mean, here's the deal. Uh there are interviews out there with both um John and Paul. There was always been the rumor, like I said, that Pete's uh handsomeness threatened the band. Um that is not true. Paul was on record as saying like you know, it's just something that happens early in the days of bands. Like, ring, we were just really struck by how great Ringo was. Pete Best sat out one gig because he, he was sick or something. Mm-hmm. Ringo sat in, and they were all just like, wow. Like, they all felt it. And it was just sort of that magic happened where they were like, oh, boy, I know what has got to happen. Um, John, for his part, said, you know, It had nothing to do with his looks. He said he was just kind of a crap drummer. I mean, he was, John was not the nicest guy in the world. Mm -hmm. So he really kind of threw threw it all on the table and was like, he wasn't a good drummer. He just wasn't, he was a good first drummer. And clearly it was time to move on from him. Uh, And it was mainly because his mom owned a place where we could play. Gotcha. Not very nice.
1: Gotcha. No, but I mean, that doesn't make him unlucky.
0: No, he didn't have the chops. And, uh, you know, he... I mean, he's he's reckoned with it. I saw an article from last year mm-hmm. where he was like, he never spoke to the, the th- other three guys again. Mm-hmm. And he was like, yeah, me and Paul, I'd love to sit down and like have a scotch and talk about it. And he's like, the door's open. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. I don't yeah. know if Paul's going to do that, though. Maybe not. Uh, he was on Howard Stern, Paul was, and Howard was like... Do you ever just going to write him a check just out of guilt? <laughs> <laughs> what did Paul say? He's just like, no, no, no. <laughs> <laughs> he did get royalties, though, later on when the Beatles anthology came out uh-huh. uh huh, because that included stuff uh, from Pete Best. So he, he ended up getting some money.
1: Yeah, he made out okay. Yeah. I think the lesson here is don't ever get sick. Yeah. That's the key, everybody. That's right. So uh, we're going to go from 1960s Liverpool to... Over to the New Orleans area, where they have hurricanes. Supposedly, they have a hurricane party every time the wind blows, I've heard. But they actually do have legitimate hurricanes. And those hurricanes can do a lot of damage, uh, as we saw in 2005 with Hurricane Katrina. By the time Hurricane Katrina rolled around, a woman named Melanie Martinez was on her fourth house, having been destroyed by a hurricane. Yeah. Um previously George in 1998, Juan in 1985, and Betsy in 1965 had destroyed her house by the time Katrina came around. But after Katrina, everybody learned their lesson. They're like, okay, we've been taking this way too insouciantly. Like, we need to really actually, like protect new orleans from flooding from hurricanes and so the federal government stepped in the government of louisiana stepped in and they really fortified new orleans so that years later seven years later actually to the day of katrina uh, making landfall when isaac made landfall new orleans held up it was a pretty big hurricane but it it weathered new orleans weathered it unfortunately in little tiny town of Bathwaite, just a little south of New Orleans, which I thought south of New Orleans was like the Caribbean or the Gulf, I guess, um, There's a little town called Bathwaite. They did not fortify this town. And it just so happened that that is where Melanie Martinez built another house that proved to be her fifth one that was destroyed by a hurricane.
0: Yeah, this is truly bad luck. Um, granted, all of those houses were in the, the same floodplain, mm-hmm. S- but it's like it's not like everybody's house was destroyed every time. Like this was truly bad luck to have five houses lost. Right, uh, and this last one uh, before Isaac, she was selected for uh, an A and E reality show, Hideous Houses. Got a twenty thousand dollar makeover, brand new kitchen, new appliances, and a new sewing room. Yeah, uh, and apparently it, that episode aired just a few weeks before Isaac came around destroyed that house, too. And, you know, when they asked her in 2012, like, why do you keep building here? You know, it's like everyone else. She's like, it's this is my home. It's mm-hmm. like, I'm, I want to live where I was born and raised, and this is my home. Yeah. Can you imagine what
1: that phone call's like? It's like, hey, I'm a producer with hideous houses, and your house <laughs> has been selected to be on hideous houses. She probably applied. Isn't that how that works? No, I think they just go scout your house. and It's really? like, no, I'm sure you apply. I think it varies
0: from show to show.
1: So for that last time with uh, Hurricane Isaac in 2012, she and her husband and their pets and um, Melanie Martinez's elderly mom barely escaped with their life. They had to hammer through their roof. They were trapped in the attic with the floodwaters rising. They had to hammer a hole into the roof and climb out where they were rescued.
0: Yeah, man. I, I mean, geez, at least they got out.
1: They did, but if, so the thing that makes it really bad luck, real quick, Chuck, is that Melanie Martinez said she would never have stayed around for that hurricane she because of her elderly mother. She wouldn't have risked her, her health. Yeah, um, They got stuck there because her van broke down. Well, but she got out. Okay, there you go.
0: <laughs> you know, I mean, she couldn't save the house, so. Yeah, it's true. It's very sad. Uh, all right, so this next one is... This is pretty remarkable. Whenever I hear about people that are uh and I've heard stories like this over the years where mm-hmm. people were had the bad luck to be in uh various places where like terrorist attacks have happened like mm-hmm. more than once. Right. Uh and this couple, this British couple, uh Jason Cairns Lawrence and his partner Jenny, they had this happened three times. Uh they were in New York City mm-hmm. on 9/11. Right. Uh, on a just a regular holiday there, so that 's number one um, a few years after that, they went vacationing in uh, in their very own London mm-hmm. in July two thousand and five and just a day into that trip uh, was when the suicide bombers attacked the London underground mm-hmm. uh, which was horrific they don 't think they 're in the underground at the time, but I imagine at this point they 're like all right what 's going on here?" A few years after that, in two thousand eight, they're like, "All right, we're going to get out of town again, and this time we're going to Mumbai, India, mm-hmm. and another terrorist attack uh, when the luxury hotel was uh, was attacked in the railway station, and one hundred and seventy four people died there.
1: They were at all three of those, all three, the three biggest terrorist attacks, I guess, in the West in the in the twenty first century. They were there for
0: yeah, the deadliest ones, at least, and they yeah uh thankfully survived all three of those but i imagine uh after those three trips they're probably not going on vacation (laughs) very much anymore they
1: they built a pool in their backyard and they're like this is what we're doing from now on
0: man i can't imagine
1: i really can't either to tell you the truth should we take a break let's take a break and we're going to come back and talk about some more hard luck cases after this okay Okay, Chuck. So, uh, this one I can't quite put my finger on whether this is, whether Alexander Graham Bell is a no-good thief or not. (laughs) I don't know, because I think I saw some more recent stuff, and I think that his image has been a little more reformed. Uh, we'll, we'll, We'll get to that. But if you're in Italy, and you're a little kid, and you are taught who... Invented the telephone, Mm -hmm. they do not teach you that it was Alexander Graham Bell. As a matter of fact, they may spit when they say the name Alexander Graham Bell because they um, very much believe that Alexander Graham Bell stole the idea for the telephone from Antonio Meucci who was an Italian inventor who seemed to have invented something very telephone-like at least a few years before Alexander Graham Bell supposedly invented his.
0: Yeah, he actually filed a patent, preliminary patent, that is, Mm -hmm. in the U.S. five years before Bell for what he called the Teletrofono, which is a much better name than telephone. Do you think so? Oh, I I would love it if... People were like, can I borrow your teletrafono? Let me see your tro, bro. <laughs> you see there? Right. I love that. So,
1: um, Antonio Miucci, uh, he definitely realized that you could send sound over electrically activated copper wires. Yes. Back in like the 1830s, he knew this. Um And he started kind of messing around with it. At one time, he created basically a telephone between his workshop and his his wife's bedroom because his wife had been stricken with uh, some sort of paralysis. And to be able to communicate with her without having to go in and check on her all the time, he basically rigged up a telephone. This was in the, I think, the uh, 1860s um, in New York, right? Yeah. Um And he even debuted this invention to the press, but he didn't speak English, and the English speaking press in New York didn't speak Italian, yeah. so it was really just covered by the Italian press but this guy in in eighteen sixty gave a demonstration of his telephone and um again, it wasn't until eighteen seventy six that Alexander Graham Bell got his patent, and like you said, Meucci, he filed a preliminary patent, and I looked into this. You know what those are, yeah. So the preliminary patent is basically this. You pay a much lower fee to basically put a hold on your invention you say this thing is coming if anybody else starts sniffing around with their own invention you let me know and then the patent office will give you will give you 3 months to file a formal patent which is again more expensive so the the idea is that Meucci didn't have enough money to file a full patent so he he placed a preliminary patent and didn't have enough money to renew it you have to renew it annually and Alexander Graham Bell swooped in
0: yeah, and here's the thing. Uh, I thought, well, I mean, there have been plenty of inventions where people working in a vacuum came up with a similar idea with similar technology. Sure. But Miyuchi, uh actually shared a space with Bell. And not, that, that's when I was like, oh, okay.
1: <laughs> it's not a good look for Bell, for sure.
0: Yeah, and then I did a little more research. I was like, did Alexander Graham Bell steal the telephone? And this was, this is not news. And I saw an article that was like, yes, he stole it from Elisha Gray. And I was like, who?
1: Well, he's the one who supposedly went to the patent office the same day, within hours of Bell, to file a patent on the phone and lost out.
0: Yeah, so there are several people that uh, claim that Bell, it was not his original idea.
1: Well, Meucci actually sued Bell. Oh, yeah. And the case made it all the way to the Supreme Court. But then Meucci died before it was resolved and they threw the case out. Very sad. But the House of Representatives in 2002 re- voted on a resolution to say, yes, Antonio Meucci is the inventor of the telephone as far as we in the U.S. are concerned. Um, what I saw, what I referred to earlier, that, that I was wondering if his image had been reformed, he he has extensive notes about his invention that he would have had to have falsified and that apparently have been scrutinized by historians. So if he was a fraud, he was a really uh, methodical fraud, I guess. Well,
0: that's one of the complaints with Elisha Gray is that the, <clears throat> uh, the sketches were, like, virtually identical to Gray's. Oh, really? Yeah, so, you know. Huh.
1: Wow. Well, we, I think we need to do at least the short stuff on Alexander Graham Bell.
0: Yeah, I think that could be a full epi. Okay. Full epi?
1: <laughs> yes, full EpiPen right in your thigh. All right, like the time you got stung by that bee. You remember that? <laughs> I know.
0: It yeah. was harrowing. <laughs> uh, all right, so this one's uh, this one's actually kind of fun um, because I like it when the bad luck isn't like super, like devastating to someone's life, and that they kind of roll with it. You know what I'm saying?
1: Yeah, Costas Mitsotakis definitely rolls with it.
0: Yeah, no, nothing bad happened here. Uh, there's a, an annual lottery in Spain that dates back to 1812 called El Gordo. Uh, it's a Christmas lottery, and it's a big, big, they call it El Gordo. It's the fat one because it's a big, big, fat payout. <laughs> yeah. And it's a very, very much a tradition in Spain. And in 2011, the jackpot was, at the time, the biggest ever, at, uh, close to a billion dollars. 950 million bucks. And there's this little town called a Sodetto. And people in this town. Is it Italian? Uh-huh. No. Okay. I didn't say Sodetto. It was close. No. That's just okay. a little flair. Okay. So in Sodetto, uh, residents there would pool money together sometimes to buy their lottery tickets because uh, it costs 26 bucks a piece. It's not like going down and buying like the, I don't even know how much Splato costs in America. is in like a dollar.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, exactly.
0: Sure. Uh, 20, we did a lotto episode back in the day, didn't we? I think we talked about El Gordo in the lotto episode because well, I, think I, so. I,
1: re- I recognize the name.
0: Yeah, yeah. El Gordo. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um So the tickets were 26 bucks at least in 2011. And this town pools their money together. 70 different families uh, all chipped in uh, because times were tough. And they didn't spring for their own ticket. And they won. They did win Um, this town
1: of like simple farmers whose backs were kind of up against the wall from the economic downturn you referenced. Apparently, they were also experiencing a prolonged drought too. Everybody was a little tense overnight had all of their money troubles just go away. Um, Every single household in the town won A minimum of 130 U.S. dollars, 130,000, I'm sorry, up to millions, right? Like if they they bought like full full chunks of the tickets um, from this lotto. And so all these people like rode their tractors into town on Christmas Day to celebrate that they had all just won the lottery. All except one guy, Costas Mitsotakis whose house was not visited by the people selling the lottery tickets for the town fundraiser, and who didn't buy a
0: ticket as a result. Right. He lived a little bit on the outskirts of town um, with a woman, his uh, romantic partner at the time. (laughs) And she actually bought in and won 100000 American dollars. No, I guess it was 100,000 euros. Okay, so yeah, it was about 130000
1: American dollars.
0: Yeah, so she won, and he did not. Uh, they're not together now. I, I don't know if that had anything to do with it. I'm not saying it does.
1: I think they had already split up.
0: Oh, okay. But at any rate, he didn't win any money. But he's a filmmaker, and mm-hmm. he was like, his quote was, it th- it was really a gift from heaven, as if someone had given me the perfect script. So he decided to make a documentary about this town and about this I win and about these villagers who apparently did not change their ways much. They all still lived very simply, and they all still shared, how, uh, you know, like lots of family in a single house. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was really kind of heartwarming. And I read an article from just like a year and a half ago where he was supposedly finishing it up, but then I never saw anything about the actual documentary. So I don't know if it was ever released or finished fully.
1: I also read that he made out okay. He'd been trying to sell his property there for a while, but because of the economic downturn, he couldn't get rid of it. And right after, somebody bought it from him. Well, that's good. Hopefully at full asking price, you know?
0: Yeah, and he seems like a good guy. He was kind of like, you know, I didn't buy a ticket. Yeah. What are you going to do? Make a well, film about it, I guess.
1: As happens. That's right. So, hat tip to uh, Costas Mitsotakis, too. That's right. Um, So, Chuck... We're moving along. We're going from Spain to right here in Atlanta. Yeah. Do you remember the 96 Olympics?
0: I do because uh, I was on a road trip out west. Uh, My friend and I, that's when we took our, like, two-and-a-half-month trip in Mm -hmm. a Volkswagen van, and, we're like, we're getting out of Atlanta for the Olympics.
1: You did not miss much. Yeah. I remember everybody (laughs) in Atlanta who owned a business sunk tons of cash into their business to revamp it for Olympic fever, and no one left downtown. Nobody. Yeah. They just stayed downtown. But one of the other things about the um, 96 Olympics, aside from like one of the most mediocre, maybe actually just outright bad
0: opening ceremonies. Pretty bad. I just remember uh, being on the road in a cheap hotel room in New Mexico and seeing uh, stainless steel pickup trucks. Mm -hmm. And I was just like, oh, my God, what's going on? (laughs) It's so
1: bad. That's so Atlanta.
0: That's uh, hot Atlanta right there. Yeah, geez.
1: Um, in addition to that, the 96 Olympics is also remembered as the Centennial Olympics. is 100 years after the first modern Olympic Games in 1896. But really, more than anything, it's remembered for the Olympic Park bombing, which is a huge deal. And this is, I mean, it was memorable because it was a big deal, like the this was an act of domestic terrorism here in the United States and it was at the Olympics and it actually could have been way worse than it was one one poor woman from I believe Albany or Leesburg Georgia died um I think a cameraman from Turkey died from a heart attack running to the scene. But like 100 people were injured. But right before that bomb went off, it was a 40-pound pipe bomb filled with um, screws and nails and all sorts of projectiles. Um, there are a lot of people standing around it watching a concert by Jack Mack and the heart attack at like 1 a.m. in Olympic Park. Um, and had they not been moved by a security guard named Richard Jewell, surely more people would have died.
0: Yeah, so Jewel sees this backpack. Uh, Again, this is uh, now uh, a backpack on the ground. Like, everyone would be like, whoa, 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 what's that thing doing there? See something, say something, see something, say something. Yeah, in 96, it was just a year after the Oklahoma City bombing. It wasn't like this was on everyone's mind at the time. And uh, Jewel said, uh, hey, I think we should get out of here. There's a backpack on the ground. Something smells fishy. Um, and I don't think he meant there was literal fish in the backpack <laughs> sorry, that was yeah, terrible. that's okay, and he got people out of there and alerted authorities and they started clearing the area pretty heavily and very quickly, Richard Jules on the news as a local hero,
1: mm, a national hero,
0: yeah, national hero, and uh everything was going great until all to of the a next sudden day he was looked at as a person of interest,
1: like the next day, yeah. Apparently the AJC got a scoop from the the Atlanta PD that the feds and everybody were starting to wonder if Richard Jewell wasn't the type of guy who would... Plan a bomb in order to put himself in a position of being a hero.
0: Yeah. They, they were like, he fits the profile. I remember all that stuff going down.
1: Yeah, and it's crazy how you can see somebody differently when people, like, paint him a certain way, you know? And, like, yeah. like he just looked like he had that mustache. What's he hiding with that mustache? Or his eyes are a little beady, aren't they? And he had been charged with um, impersonating an officer, so he's clearly, like, a wannabe cop right. kind of thing. And... um he looked really bad. And then finally in October, the FBI was like, oh, Richard Jewell, no, no, we cleared him. He's not a he's not a person of interest. It was surely somebody else. But by this time, Richard Jewell's name had been drugged through the mud yeah. associated with a major act of terrorism at the Olympics in the United States um, for months before he was cleared. And it was the damage was, was very much done.
0: Yeah. Um, of course, everyone knows the real bomber was Eric Rudolph. Uh, And again, you know, those four months were really rough on Jewel and his family. Mm -hmm. And even after he was cleared in October, it's like, like everyone knew he was cleared, but it's still one of those things where like it's attached to his name, you know? Oh, yeah. He entered, he went from the suspect phase to the late night
1: talk show monologue joke phase.
0: Yeah. That's not a good transition. No, it isn't. Uh, And very sadly, he died in 2000 at just the young age of 44 from uh, complications of diabetes,
1: yep. So he had it rough. He got like a settlement from CNN and New York Times for, I guess, overzealous and unfounded reporting. Maybe, but yeah, um, it was a, uh, it was a. Uh, he he did not have like a great last part of his life.
0: All right, the last one, folks. Uh, breaking news: Josh emails me <laughs> about thirty minutes before we record or so, and said, mm-hmm. "By the way." The number one guy on the list is a fraud. I said he may be a fraud. Oh, I thought you said he was a fraud. Know, I'm trying to see <laughs> away here. Oh, okay. Sorry.
1: It's not proven that he's a fraud because, well, well let's just get into all this, okay?
0: Yeah. What's his name? Uh, Selak? Fr- Frane, Frano?
1: Frane. Frane? C-lack. Frane Selak. Frane? Everywhere else I saw it, F A R N.
0: I don't know what to believe anymore.
1: I know. (laughs) We've just lost touch with reality, Charles.
0: So he has been dubbed the luckiest man in the world for supposedly surviving seven brushes with death, Mm -hmm. ranging from a train uh, going into an icy river to cars going off of cliffs again into icy rivers, Mm -hmm. uh, cars catching on fire, cars plunging off of cliffs, like... So much stuff that you're like, can this be true? Especially uh, the plane crash that went down where he supposedly was sucked out of a door and landed on a haystack.
1: Yeah, before the plane crashed. Now, is this real? So, Any of it? So here's the thing all of this starts in, um, I believe, 2005. Uh-huh. He, he buys a lottery ticket, wins like a, a million dollar or million euro lottery.
0: And that happened.
1: That definitely
0: happened. Okay.
1: And he was interviewed by The Scotsman, the newspaper, The Scotsman. And in this article, he's like, oh, you think it's lucky that I won a million dollars? Let me tell you about some of the unlucky things that have happened to me. And he starts reeling off these stories of like just narrowly escaping death And the Scotsman's like, wow, that's fantastic. We're going to print this. And the Scotsman printed it. And all of a sudden, it started getting picked up by other news outlets and other news outlets and other news outlets. And then finally, in one of these articles, there was a commenter um, who identified himself as Friday Selak's son who said, hey— not one single journalist has ever independently verified a single one of these stories. This guy's actually my father, and he has always wanted to be famous. So when he was interviewed for winning the lottery, he saw his chance and he made all of this up.
0: Well, if it was an internet commenter, it must be true.
1: Exactly. That's why I was COAing
0: because it's like Is that the only place you found that?
1: Yes, but the point remains correct. It has never been and none of it has ever been independently verified. Oh. So it's not entirely it's it's entirely possible that there that he wasn't on um any plane or in, in a in a bus accident or that his car crashed. It's not verified that he has been. It hasn't been clearly shown that he hasn't been. It's just this guy makes a really good point that this dude who everybody says is the luckiest man in the world. It's possible he made it all up. Now, how can we not get
0: to the bottom of this? <clears throat> what do you mean? Well, I mean, we found out the world is flat and that they fake the moon landing through research. <laughs> Why right. can't we find out what happened with Frane Selak? Uh, like you and me specifically, or, or anybody? The media like, in surely general. this you could find this out, right? Yeah, I guess you could. I think no one's gone
1: to the trouble of doing it. It's a good story that everybody likes. It's not really hurting anything for him to be lying and for the lie to be perpetuated. Um, It's more just... uh, It's just kind of laziness among journalism, I guess. Including us, because I didn't go (laughs) get to the bottom of it. I didn't go independently verify any of his claims.
0: Well, I did see an article that... uh... Is that where you saw it uh, at interesting dot com?
1: No, I didn't see it on there. I don't. Re- I don't remember where I saw the article. I'll have mm. to look.
0: Go ahead. Well, there was an article that talked about the fact that, um, that mentioned the commenter or whatever and the doubts. Yeah,
1: I think that's become kind of a thing because there was a a, a viral um, a viral uh, uh video that um, that re- made the rounds. That was really really interesting. Um because it's just this cute little animation of this guy's story in his life. And um, I guess I saw the thing about him being being a possible hoax on BBC. Yeah. So if you put BBC together and all that's interesting, you have legitimate fact.
0: Right. And I apologize for looking at my phone right now, but (laughs) I'm doing a real-time investigation, Mm -hmm. and apparently some people have Googled, and these plane crashes and uh, things aren't, it's documented so oh. it sounds like it might be uh, it might be false claims i don't know
1: okay but even still it's a great story i mean just the fact that this guy made up all of this load of bs sure during an interview is pretty hilarious he's one of the great improv comedians of all time right it's a good way to end things too don't you think i think so well thanks for joining us everybody thanks for putting on your <laughs> smoking jacket and your uh, house slippers um putting on a, a, a nice um, Barry White record mm-hmm, and uh, relaxing with us. I yeah. hope you feel relaxed now. Do you feel relaxed Chuckers? I do. And Jerry does obviously Jesus, sleep. I know um, Well if you want to know more about the unluckiest people in the world just go look at stuff on the internet. It may or may not be true Who really cares right? Yeah uh, And since I said that it's time for Listener Mail
0: uh, I'm going to call this one uh, sort of an older one that I forgot about So apologies to Jessica Breslin, because I told her I would read this a month ago. Oh, boy. Hey, guys, love the recent episode on uh, rape kits, but wanted to make a tiny correction about how the Golden State Killer was caught. Although there was a time that the Golden State Killer's DNA was part of the backlog, the DNA had actually been identified and linked to his crimes since the 90s. The problem was they had no person to compare it to. Uh, This changed in 2018 when they compared it to DNA submitted to a familial DNA base, when a relative submitted their DNA to the familial DNA site, they were able to see that the DNA was related, and from there were able to narrow down their suspects to two likely family members. Uh, after narrowing it down to those two, they were able to identify their suspect, collect a sample of his DNA, to compare it to the Golden State killers. Uh, however, still good proof on why testing backlog kits is still so important. Uh, you never know what sort of technological breakthroughs will help law enforcement catch the perpetrators even when you don't have a suspect. I uh, love the podcast, guys. Appreciate all the hard work uh, and keeping it entertaining and respectful even when it's a such sensitive subject matter. And that is Jessica Breslin. I guess I said I was going up there at the end, wasn't I?
1: Yes, indeed, you did go up there, Chuck. That was kind of a nice little flourish. Uh, well, thanks a lot, Jessica. We appreciate the email. Um, and if you, sorry for being a month late and reading it, that was all Chuck. Um, and if you want to get in touch with us like Jessica did, um you can go to stuffyoushouldknow.com check out our social links, get in touch with us that way, or you can send us a good old-fashioned email to stuffpodcast at iHeartRadio.com.
0: Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio's How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.